The report is that uh, Dr. Dean is having a great time over in North Carolina. Pray for his safety. He's been playing on zip lines and other things. So uh, we'll pray for his safe return next week. Pray also for Camp Arete, which is this week. Received word from Jeff Phipps that the camp is going very, very well. And he also sent me a photo of a girl who just put her faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And that's exciting. That, that to me, is just uh, one of the best good news that anybody could ever hear. And to think that there has been a change in eternity. You realize that? Eternity has changed because now there is a new child of God who's going to live with us forever. And I, uh, I just get excited when I hear that. So uh, we praise God for his continued work, for the Holy Spirit's continued work. And uh, we pray for those who are uh, ministering and giving out a gospel. So let's continue to pray for uh, for them and then for their safe return to whatever churches um, they are from. As we come to our study of the Word of God this evening, we'll take a moment for you to examine yourself before the Lord. If there's any sin standing between you and God right now, you need to confess that sin to God the Father. The sin was already paid for by Jesus when he was on the cross, and because of this, God is able to forgive your sins, and he has promised to do so. It's all a matter of his grace, never dependent on us, our works, our goodness, our deservedness, our feelings, but simply upon meeting God's divine requirements of confession of sin to him. So let us pray. We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, for your good news to us that makes it possible for us to have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. We just rejoice that there's a new name written down in glory, a new child of God who will live with us forever in your presence. We just praise you for that. We thank you for those who are laboring at uh, Camp Arete. I pray that you'll give them grace, give them wisdom as they minister to the children we have there. They might be able to communicate accurately your word that will help to prepare these teens to face the philosophy of the world, the doctrines of demons that's just so prevalent in our world. And we pray that if there are others there who have not come to faith in Christ, that they are going to understand their need for a Savior. They will see the provision that you've made for their salvation in Jesus Christ, that they too might come to faith in Christ. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word, that we have it in writing, so that we can study it and come to understand 
your perfect plan, your provision for us. So we pray that tonight your Holy Spirit will guide us into truth, that we might be edified, and that you will be glorified through this. And we would ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 53. And we have come down to verse 8. And what we see in this verse is that the contemporaries of the servant do not understand the meaning, the significance of his death. Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. All right, this starts out by saying he was taken. The word taken means that he was seized. Something happened. It was violent. He was seized. And it says he was taken from prison and from judgment. Now, this is a phrase that is very difficult to translate. Uh, and there have been many attempts to uh, bring this Hebrew expression into our language and to accurately communicate just what the original text was saying. Uh, most of the options suggest violent action against the servant, and this is done within a legal context. So the problems that we have here uh, actually fall into two areas. One, how to translate the preposition from, when it says he was taken from. Prepositions can be very difficult to translate from one language to another. Now, we don't have a problem with prepositions in English. We grew up with the language, and we understand how they work in our language, and we're able to integrate those into the context of almost everything we hear and everything that we speak or read. But um, to go from one language to another sometimes is very difficult. So the word translated here, from... It can be translated by, or through, or after, or from. Now, what we have here is it happens through something. Uh, and so we have pr prison and judgment. Uh, they together form a, an expression that means a coercive legal decision. And then it comes to mean an unjust trial. So the, the idea here is it's without proper judicial process or unfairly with no one to defend him. It means after arrest and judgment or uh, what we find in the uh, NAS, the New American Standard, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Um, so what does it mean by oppression and judgment? Uh, some have suggested it means without protection and without legal procedure that was followed in the proper way. 
And so the idea that there is no attempt to secure a fair trial for the servant. Now, we know that Jesus underwent six trials the night before the cross, three before religious authorities, three before civil authorities. All of the trials were illegal. They all perverted justice, and there was nothing fair about what happened in those six trials. And so nothing was done to secure a fair trial for the servant. So we have here by oppression and judgment, or some have put it together, and uh, they have said by means of oppressive sentence or by means of a perverted judgment, even indicating judicial violence. And we know that in some of the trials that Jesus endured, there was physical abuse that he endured where he was slapped, uh, and that was even before uh, the Romans got a hold of him to uh, flog him and the rest of the things that they did. So what we have here when it says by oppression and judgment or taken from prison and judgment, we have the idea that he was dragged to punishment after he was arrested, he was taken, and he was abused, and it had no legal standing. And so the idea here is that the servant was hurried away to death uh, he was taken forcibly. There was violent treatment, which ultimately resulted in death. And so to summarize all of this, the servant was the victim of judicial murder. And so it all he went through the court, yes, but he was unjustly condemned and put to death. So... By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who will declare his generation? Or we'll read the NAS here. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? Now, this is quite different from what we read in the New King James, which says, Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Well, who will declare his generation? There are uh, two possibilities here for generation. Uh, One is generation can mean descendants. However, we know that the servant had no children, and therefore he has no descendants. And so who will declare his his descendants? Uh, And some have said, well, that's the, the problem here. Because he was put to death, he doesn't have any descendants. But that wasn't going to happen in the line of Christ anyway, so... That's probably not the best understanding of this. Second idea of generation has to do with his contemporaries. And so this would say, 
and his generation. Who considers or who from his generation, who from his contemporaries considers? And so the point would be that there are a few who are concerned about the harsh treatment that he received, and they certainly did not understand the significance of his death. So yet, who of his generation considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? As we... So you see, we have a, a, a very different statement here in the NAS. They have the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Well, we'll come back to that. First of all, it says he was cut off. Now, when this word cut off is followed by the preposition from, it connotes a violent severance from a former way of life, or it can refer to physical death. Sometimes the word cut off simply means somebody was put away from the people. They're kicked out of the community, as it were. But in other cases, it means something that is violent, something that is thrust upon you, and often it will refer even to physical death, which is premature and unnatural to be cut off. doesn't mean you got old and die or got sick and died. It means that something happened to you that was not natural. And so this term indicates something that is unusual. So we're not told here by this word the exact cause of death, but there is violence that is suggested by this word, and so we might translate this, he was forcibly removed, he was cut off. He's going to be taken out from the land of the living. The land of the living... It's an idiom for the sphere of, of where people live in contrast to the underworld realm of the dead. The land of the living means those who are alive, those who are here on the earth. And so the addition here of from the land of the living, he was cut off from the land of the living, this eliminates any doubt as to the fact that the servant died physically. There are a lot of theories about the death of Christ with people wanting to say Jesus really didn't die on the cross. And they have come up with such nonsense as called the swoon theory. Well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. And then they took his body down and they put it into this tomb. And then because he was now in this cool place where they had laid him out, that during the night he was able to recover. And then he got up and somehow on these feet that had been pierced through with nails and with hands that had been pierced through with nails, he was able to roll back this big stone and he was able to limp out. And then he went to... India, where he lived a happy life. I mean, just you read this stuff and you say, what are these people drinking? It's, uh, but they, they want to do away with the death of Jesus. But this very clearly says he was cut off, violently removed from the land of the living. So there is an actual physical death that is clearly indicated even here in Isaiah chapter 53. 
Now, why was he cut off from the land of the living? It says here, for the transgression of my people. Now, the word transgression, there are numerous words found in the Hebrew text for sinning. This word is found some 18 times in the book of Isaiah. And the idea of this word for transgression is the breach of relationships between two parties. It's the casting off of an alliance or an allegiance. It's rebellion against duly constituted authority. And Israel is accused of rebelling against her divine king and against the established covenant between God and Israel. And so Isaiah keeps coming back to this idea of transgression. In Isaiah 128, it says, Transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. The idea here, of course, is uh, rebellion against God and his covenant. Um, now, in Isaiah 48, 8, he says, You have been called a re- rebel from birth. You have been a transgressor. You have been in rebellion against God from the very beginning. And he keeps saying that this is a violation of the covenant uh, in Hosea 8.1. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant. Now, of all the religions in the world, not one of them has a God who makes a covenant with man. Not one. Only the God of the Bible has ever made a covenant with mankind. God has obligated himself by making covenants. We have eight covenants that are specified in Scripture. Three of them are with the human race. Five of them are specifically with Israel. So we have five covenants God made with Israel. Four are unconditional. One is conditional. Now, when you have an unconditional covenant, it means that this is unilateral, that God is the only one who is bound by the terms of the contract. He's the only one who is required to perform. That's what it means that it's unconditional. But God also made a conditional covenant with Israel. And what do we call that? The Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law. Now, this was conditional because in that covenant, God said, if you will do this, then I will bless you. But if you do something different, if you disobey, then I'm going to curse you. Now, Israel cannot violate an unconditional covenant. Now, they may not meet certain conditions that uh, would allow them to benefit from it, 
but because they're unconditional, they're not required to perform. But the, un, but the conditional covenant, the Mosaic law, requires them to perform because they agreed to it. They signed that covenant. So that is a bilateral covenant, the Mosaic law is. And this says, they have rebelled against my law. They have transgressed my covenant. So what is transgression? It's going to be rebellion against divinely constituted authority. In this case, the law that God has uh, given to them. So uh, he says, you have gone from the very beginning, from your birth, you have been in rebellion against me. You keep fighting against me. And so they're called transgressors even from the womb. So uh, Ezekiel 2.3. What we see as we look at these different prophets who keep saying the same thing, they are trying to call Israel back to covenant obedience because they have been in rebellion. Ezekiel 2.3, he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. So we see this over and over again. Transgression is rebellion. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God's laws. And when we read this, what we discover is this is not some inadvertent sin. This is not some, one of those sins, you know, you just did it and you say, ooh, how could I do that? You, I didn't even think about it. I'm just so practiced in sinning in certain areas that uh, something happens and certain words come out of my mouth and I don't even have to think about it. Or certain thoughts come into my mind. This is not what this is talking about. This is talking about, I know what God said, and I don't care. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do it anyway. See, this is a rebellion. It's open rebellion. It's deliberate. Now, because they have rebelled, they deserve judgment. All right, from among his contemporaries, from among his generation, who considered, who thought about this, that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? They're not thinking, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's put to death because we're such horrible people, because we are a sinful nation. They're not thinking about that at all. It never occurred to them. They're not thinking they are bad people. So he says, who considered this? Who, who even thought about this? Now he says, for the transgression, the rebellion of my people. My people, you see, Israel today, they want to say, Isaiah 53 is all about the nation of Israel, and how the nation of Israel has suffered, and that this isn't talking about Messiah. Well, right, if that's the case, who is my people? 
my people suffering for my people, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit the context. We find here that there is a distinction between the servant, who is a reference to Messiah, and my people. So my people is a reference to the nation of Israel. So this is God who is speaking in this verse. And 26 times in Isaiah we find the phrase, my people. And it clearly refers to Israel. For the transgression, the rebellion of my people. And then we have this word stricken. If we're in the uh, New King James, let me get that back up here. All right, it says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, the word stricken, it's the same word that is found uh, back in verse 4. We saw it there, where it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And now we have the same word occurs here. And um, the word literally means to touch, and touch can have a lot of different nuances a lot of different meanings actually throughout the uh, Old Testament. But uh, here it means a stroke, a blow. It means a wound in connection with punishment. It means one is being punished and they are being struck in some way. Now this blow or this stroke, this punishment was due to my people. They're guilty. They are the ones who should have received the penalty, but instead the blow falls upon the servant. So the blow here uh, was due to Israel, but it fell on the servant. So we have here um, perhaps a better translation for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, or the English Standard Version has this, and I think this is a a very good translation uh, to certainly convey uh, what Isaiah is saying. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And remember, taken away, this is a violent uh, rush to judgment resulting in judicial murder. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So they deserve the punishment. But it falls on the suffering servant of Yahweh. Here is substitution. We find this all the way through the gospel. It's substitution. The just for the unjust. The one who knew no sin in the place of sinners. So this is saying, who among his contemporaries realized what was going on, that he was being cut off, that he was being executed for their transgressions? And so although the servant was unjustly condemned, His contemporaries didn't understand the meaning of that death at all, uh, that it was Christ taking their place, paying the penalty for their sins. All right, now in verse 9, 
we have the last verse in this strophe. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So what we see here is that the innocent servant received an honorable burial in spite of the intent of his enemies that he be buried with the wicked. So the description of the suffering and death moves on to the facts now of his burial. The intention of the servant's enemies went unfulfilled because he indeed had an honorable burial. So it says that Christ was crucified with wicked men. There were thieves. He was between two thieves, two criminals. They deserved death. He didn't. But nevertheless, they have Jesus being crucified between these two criminals, and you don't give criminals an honorable burial. They don't get that. And so it's very unusual then that Jesus would have a burial in a rich man's tomb. So it was usual for a man to be buried with his father's. That's the typical expression that we find in the Old Testament. To be buried with the fathers, that was what was expected. You're going to be buried um, in your family plot or at least in your family territory. And if you were not buried with your fathers, it was considered to be a great calamity. You wanted to be buried with your family. But for those who had no family grave, there was a common burial place. It was mentioned several places in the Old Testament that that there were some people, they died, and they just had a common burial place for them. Uh, Whether or not that included the criminals, uh, we don't know that, um, unless it's something that we could infer from this passage. But... It says they made his grave with the wicked. Now, uh, when they say they made his grave, it's an impersonal statement with no stated subject. And when they do that in Hebrew, usually they translate it with the word they at the beginning. They did something. Well, who was they? Unspecified. Um, or we could translate it this way. He was assigned a grave. The word assigned, it means to make to put, to assign, to give. So he was assigned something. He was assigned a grave or a sepulcher. This is a word used mostly just for a literal literal tomb. But it was interesting as I was thinking about this. Did you ever think that people had different plans for the body of Jesus after his crucifixion? I never thought about did they what did they plan to do with him? Okay, they gave him to the Romans to be crucified, and then what? Did they have any plans? Well, this says he was assigned a burial place. In other words, somebody had to see to the details, and uh, details had been made, and he was assigned a grave with 
the wicked. But God is going to overrule their plans. So he was assigned a grave with the wicked, the word wicked. Uh, it can mean to act wickedly or to condemn someone as guilty. It means to be wrong, unjust, or to condemn someone as guilty. So Jesus dies between two criminals. Okay. Luke 23:32 there were also two others criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they'd come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So Jesus is put to death with the wicked. So he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich in his death. So God has overruled the plans of man. And he was with the rich in his death. Now, in his death, it's a very strange expression. Because, first of all, the word death is in the plural in the Hebrew text. Deaths, which intensifies the force. It's like when Adam... Sin, it says, dying, you will surely die. You will surely die. Um, and so Adam, he died spiritually the moment that he ate the fruit of that tree, and then later he died physically. So we're going to have this servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, he endured death in both senses, spiritual and physical. Spiritual during the three hours on the cross from noon until 3 p.m. And then after that, he died physically. Now, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich in his death. And some try, well, we have parallel expressions here where you have wicked and you have rich, and they want to say, and both are bad. I don't think they're both bad. I don't think rich here has any negative connotation at all. It's simply a statement that his burial is going to be connected with someone who's rich. It's not because there's any sinfulness or anything wrong with having the wealth. So uh, we have this phrase, he was with the rich in his death, and so... In his death, this refers to really after he dies, not in the act of dying, but after he died. That, so it means in his burial, in his state of death. And so they appointed his grave with wicked men, but actually he was buried in a rich man's tomb. We know this from Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60, with Joseph of Arimathea. Wealthy man had a tomb. It was nearby. It was already prepared. And he gave that to Jesus for burial. 
So the implication of the passage is that the Lord overrules the intentions of men. He ordains that his servant will have a splendid tomb. And the reason for his honorable sepulcher, so different from what his enemies had planned, was that after his redemptive work was accomplished, the Lord didn't allow him to suffer any more indignities. Okay, that's all done. That's finished. That's past. And once they take him down from the cross, there is no more indignity that's going to be suffered by the Lord Jesus. So this says, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And then we have the word because. Now, some translations, uh, and you may have one that says, although, instead of because, um, although he had done no violence. But it's better to understand that this is used in a causal sense. And we translate it with the word because, indicating that the cause of the Lord's providential overturning of man's purposes is because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, the last part of this verse, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Peter quotes this directly in 1 Peter 2.22. Jesus is not guilty of any sin or any crime whatsoever. Uh, This is stated uh, numerous times in Scripture. 1 John 3.5, you know he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus Christ is impeccable. He had no sin. He was not born with sin, not a sin nature, not with imputed sin. He committed no acts of personal sin. And therefore, he is qualified to be the Redeemer because he is perfectly sinless. If he had any sin himself, then he would need a Savior. But because he has no sin, he is acceptable to the Father as our substitute. All right. All right, because he had done, the word done, it means to do, to make, to perform, to commit, in the sense that we use it of committing sins. He had committed no violence. This means sinful violence. Did Jesus ever commit violence? Well, we would say that driving the money changers out of the temple when he made whips and drove them out and overturned the tables, we would probably categorize that as violent today. But uh, this word violence does not refer to the violence of natural catastrophe, like a violent windstorm or a violent storm, nor is this violence as might be pictured in a police chase on modern television. But this word violence often is used for extreme wickedness. This was the reason God brought the flood on the earth from Romans 6.11. It's because of violence, sinful violence in the world. In other places, this word indicates malicious, cruel behavior. And the aspect of sinfulness that we have in this word refers to transgression of God's laws.
Ezekiel 22:26. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They've not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the clean and the unclean. They have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. And we find that word here. They, they have brought violence against the plan of God. Zephaniah 3, 4. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Here we have again this idea that there is deliberate rebellion to do violence against the law. So that's not necessarily what we would consider to be physical violence, but it's the fact that there has been transgression, rebellion against the revealed will of God as given in the law. So when it says he had done no violence, he has never done things that were cruel or vicious, although we might say he was physically violent in driving out the money changers, but he certainly never was violent against the law of God. He never transgressed. So this is a statement about the sinlessness of the servant. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And we already saw that the servant would not defend himself when he was falsely accused, but neither would he be guilty of anything worthy of death. So there is lack of violence, there is lack of deceit, and this represents someone who is totally without sin. The servant would always speak the truth. Now, they made his grave with the rich in his deaths. What we see as we study Scripture is that Jesus had two deaths on the cross. Two deaths. And Isaiah 53, 9 is the only one that uses that word deaths in the plural. The only one. So Jesus suffered two types of death when he was on the cross, physical and spiritual. And too often people don't know this or they forget about it, but often it's just a matter of ignorance, and so they misunderstand what really happened at the cross. Now, both before and during his crucifixion, he suffered great physical pain. It was great suffering, but that was not death. If you've seen that film, The Passion of the Christ, the passion means his physical suffering. But that's not what brings our salvation. That is not the death of Christ. He was alive when he suffered all of that indignity, all of the horrible torture, the beatings, the floggings, but he's still alive.
We saw in Isaiah 53, he suffered great anguish, extreme mental and physical pain because he bore a heavy burden. So there was intense suffering physically and mentally. But the first death that he suffered on the cross was spiritual. This is when God the Father laid on God the Son all of our sins, as we studied in Isaiah 53, 6. So Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. For the first three hours on the cross, he is suffering horribly from the crucifixion. But during this time, he is able to talk to people, talks to John, talks to his mother, talks to the soldiers. He prays. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Jesus was suffering during this time, but he wasn't dead. And he wasn't spiritually dead. But then at 12 o'clock noon, great darkness covered the earth so that no one could see Jesus on the cross. And then God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He put our sins upon Jesus. And when that happened, Jesus died. He is now separated from God. Death always has this concept of separation. And now Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So it says in 1 Peter 2.24, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. We have these other verses up here. They all indicate Jesus taking our place, bearing our sins because of this judicial act of God the Father in imputing our sins to his son while he was on the cross. And so Isaiah 53, 9 has a unique expression with deaths in the plural, but with a singular pronoun, his deaths. So we have something that's unique here. So Jesus dies spiritually. That's his humanity that dies both spiritually and physically. Deity cannot die in any way. But he dies spiritually in bearing our sins. No fellowship with God during that time from from noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This is when he is separated from God. And this is when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we can also note that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, that when Jesus is bearing our sins... He addresses the Father as God. He doesn't call him Father. Now he's calling him God, my God, my God. But once he has completed the work of salvation, once he has paid all of the penalty for all of the sins of all of the world, then once again he addresses God as Father. Because now he is restored to fellowship with his heavenly Father. So in John 19.30, he cries out, It is finished. I really don't like to see those films where they've got Jesus and he's been crucified and, and then at the end he's got this weak, sickly voice that you can barely hear. It's finished. 
No, this is a cry of victory. This is a cry. I've done it. I accomplished the work that God sent me to do. Salvation is done. Everything necessary for salvation has been completed. It's over. It's done with. Everything has been done. It is finished. Finished in the past with the result there is nothing else to do to provide for the salvation of the human race. So when Jesus said it's finished, everything has been accomplished as far as spiritual death, bearing our sins. Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So Jesus died spiritually. That's our sins being placed upon him, and he is separated from his Father. But while he is spiritually dead, he is still physically alive. But after his work of salvation is completed, then he's going to die physically. Now, his physical death is also unique because it's an act of his own volition, not because wicked men took it from him. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. So in Luke 23:46, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he expired. Now the word commit, it means to entrust, to set something before someone else, or to deposit what belongs to one person into the hands of another. I'm going to give this to you. And so he says, Father, I'm, I'm going to deposit my spirit into your keeping. Or in Matthew 27, 50, Matthew uses a different word. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The word yield means to release, to send away, to cause, to separate. He sent away his spirit. We can't do that. I mean, you might, you might be in a really bad place and you are, you are really miserable and you say, Father, into your hands I dismiss my spirit. And you open your eyes and you're still here. You can't do it. You can't die that way. But Jesus was able to do that. He had a unique death because he dismissed his own spirit to the Father and so it says that he sent away. He caused his spirit to separate. That's his physical death. His spirit was gone. So Christ died twice that we might be born twice. Even as Adam in his fall became spiritually dead and later died physically. So the last Adam, who was Christ, identified with our sins and spiritual death. He also died physically. Why? So that he might be resurrected physically in order to provide for us to have resurrection life. Jesus had to die physically and be resurrected in order that we who have physical life might also 
have resurrection life. So as physical death and resurrection, they guarantee to us a new resurrection body. He had to die physically in order to be resurrected. He had to die physically in order for us to be resurrected. Also, his physical death signified that the penalty of sin, his spiritual death, was paid for. And salvation is an accomplished fact. When I was a teenager in high school, I was a little different from what I am today. But I was with a a group of uh, young people and many from my church, uh, we would carry our Bible to school and we'd put it on top of the other books. That was, that was part of our testimony. So I'd carry this Bible and there would be, uh, sometimes people would uh, want to mock me, or I suppose some might have been uh, sincerely seeking an answer, but they'd say, hey, what's that? And I would say, it's a riddle book. Huh? A riddle book? Yeah, it's a riddle book. Here's the riddle. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. When you get the answer, let me know. See, and that was my own perverse sense of humor back then. So if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. So if you're born twice, that is physically and spiritually, then you die but once and you only die physically because you won't die spiritually. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You'll never die. So you can die physically, but you'll never die spiritually. But if you're born only once, then you're going to die twice. You're born physically. If you're not born spiritually, oh, then you're going to have something to worry about. So there's going to be physical death, and then there is spiritual death. The second death, talked about in Revelation chapter 20, is spiritual death that's perpetuated into eternity in the lake of fire after the great white throne. So we have this wonderful passage about the servant He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened out his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment, and who will declare his generation, or who considered from his generation that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom it was due? They deserved to die, he didn't. And they made his grave with the wicked, but he was buried with the rich at his deaths because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So Jesus is sinless, and therefore he is qualified. Now, in spite of all this, the next verse is just astonishing. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Jesus Christ Sinless Son of God, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. We have what it cost the Father, it cost him his Son. And what did it cost the servant? It cost him everything. And he did that for you. 
He did that for me. We deserve the penalty. We deserve separation eternally in the lake of fire. We deserve that. And yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise his son so that we could live with him forever. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my Lord, has died for me? Father in heaven, we give thanks for your great love. It's infinite. And you express that love by sending your son into the world. And he endured so much just the physical and mental anguish beyond what we could imagine. But then the worst of all, infinite suffering when my sins were put upon him. The sins of the world were put upon him. Heavenly Father, I I just pray that your spirit will take these things and just burn them into our hearts that we might always be aware of what you did to bring many sons into glory, what Jesus did that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that we might have a part in your eternity. So help us to understand these things. And I pray that we'll also be motivated to tell others about this good news of salvation that's been provided as a gift to us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray now you'll show us mercy as we get out on the roads, take us safely to our homes. But I pray also that you'll give us mercy so that we can come again on Sunday in freedom that we might worship you in spirit and truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.